One of the advantages of being the lead pastor, uh, and they're often disadvantages, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) I guess. Yeah, I shouldn't say it that way. Lord knows my heart in that. But one of them is you start studying, and I try to do regular Bible study, like hopefully like many of you, but sometimes I'd pick a, a book and use my commentaries to kind of start working my way through it. And it's been a few months ago, but First Timothy, or Timothy, but First Timothy was somewhere where I camped out and was kind of working my way through it, and I end up at First Timothy chapter 4. So Lord willing, over the next four weeks through the month of February, I'll be teaching on 1 Timothy 4, 12 through 16. And we're going to just take four verses and work our way through over these next four weeks, and we will see how that goes, right? Right? Okay, we'll see how that goes. And uh, one reason I love this passage of Scripture is I was studying it. I, I'm a very visual person. So what happens is if you start trying to give me like, for instance, directions over the phone and you start saying, well, just turn here and it, if I don't start writing it down or I don't have a reference point or I don't have, I, it's just kind of like noise in my head. Anybody like that in the room where you just start, people start throwing stuff at you and you go, whoa, just stop talking. It's not helping. Uh, okay, just stop because I need to write this down. I either need to write it down or I need to get some kind of visual. And, and, and so you go from, there's times I know that I can use Siri to get where I need to get to, but it helps me to just Google the address first to kind of get a scope of the landscape. Just kind of go, this is, okay, this is kind of where we're headed. This is kind of, I don't, again, it's just me. But one of the reasons I love this passage of scripture and I kind of camped, well, not kind of, I did camp out on it. For, for a while studying through it, is there so much visual uh, effects, if you will, involved in this passage of Scripture? And I hope, in my, uh, my ability to, to share with you, I hope that you can grasp some of these. And what I mean by that grasp, I know you can grasp it. I hope I can communicate it where it makes it easier to grasp. That's a better way to say it. So here we go. So 1 Timothy, or, or, or actually the 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, referred to as the pastoral epistles where Paul was writing to Timothy and then ultimately to Titus. And they're, they're addressed to them because they're, because they're in a position of pastoral oversight. And, and we can talk more about a little bit of this more in the next few weeks. But, but one of the big things they involve was Christian living and their doctrine and ultimately about leadership. So we're going to be addressing those over these next many weeks, and hopefully you'll stick around and come and, and, come and listen. I hope it'll be a, a big help to you. But Timothy was ordained by Paul and the elders, as we'll read again here in just a minute, by laying on of hands, and then he was reminded to live into, in, into that ordination. And so I want to read passages of Scripture, and then we're just going to kind of work our way through this first verse 12 today. But let me read it for you, and you can, it should be up on the screen. Don't let anyone... Look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which is is given to you through prophecy when the body of elders lay their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. 
Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So there's four messages we're going to camp out on over the next four weeks inside of that. I'm not telling you how it's going to break down except to say today we're just going to start on verse 12. And one of the reasons we love this verse in the Church of the Nazarene, if you're a youth pastor or student pastor in the Church of the Nazarene or have been over the last three or four decades, uh, or maybe longer than that, but this was the scripture verse for the Church of the Nazarene, NYI, Nazarene Youth International. This was the verse. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Now, the first part of this, I like, it says, don't let anyone. I love the, 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 the translation here, and get, get the, hopefully you'll get the visual here. It is no one, not even one or anything. Don't let it be a possibility. Get it out of your head. Don't do it. Don't, I would even say, don't let the enemy whisper to you. No matter what you've done. But don't let the possibility of anyone or anything get into your head that you should be looked down on. Timothy had to overcome, and we'll get into it more in the next few weeks, he had to overcome a few stereotypes. One, he didn't come from the right background. He was biracial. He was neither fully Jew, and he was neither fully Greek. Acts 16 one says, Paul came also to Derbe, to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So first off, he's got a huge hill to overcome. He's biracial. He doesn't really land either place. The second part is, Timothy wasn't Paul. Now, why does that make a difference? Because of the way Paul says it here, Timothy was second string. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, he says, Therefore I urge you to imitate me for the reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful Lord. He will remind you of the way I live in Christ, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. In other words, I'm sending Timothy to imitate me so, so you know that I'm imitating Christ. I'm sending you the second string. I know I'm the main guy. It's almost like I can't even hardly imagine Paul writing this going, yeah, I know you want me. That's cool. I can't be everywhere. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't represent. No, I can only be one place. So I'm representing the next best thing is Timothy because he, in other scripture, because Timothy ends up being in five, at least five different churches he's sent to. So Timothy's a busy guy. But it, 
but he, along the way, he says, I'm sending him so he will live like, he's watched me close enough, he imitates me. And so you just know by imitating me, I'm imitating Christ. Follow my examples, I follow the example of Christ. But still, he's second string. But then Paul says, don't let them look down on you because you're young. And doing research, you try to figure out how old Timothy was at this time. Because I think it was implied all those years, I think as a youth pastor or student pastor, as that being the verse, that he was probably a teenager. And he probably was when Timothy met him. I mean, when Paul met Timothy probably 15, 16 years old. But when this is written, it's probably another 15 years later. Okay, there you go, 31. Got a 31, got a woo out of 31 in here. Okay. So when he's saying to him at this point, now he's basically becoming the bishop of Ephesus, if you will, or the leader of the church at Ephesus. So he's saying Don't let them look down on you because in that culture, wisdom and age carried a huge weight. But the other part, the reason why you called young, because in the Greek, in this culture here, in in that translation, is that up to 40 years old, you could still be in the military. So anybody 40 years old and younger was considered young or youth. So don't let anyone look down on you because you are Younger than what they anticipated. I know in sports today, because age is relative, right? If you're 35 years old and you play professional football, or if you're 31 or 32 years old and you're professional football running back, you're an old man. (laughs) True? Those who know about it, you know you're old. You're almost done. Can you imagine having your, your career and it's over at 31 and now you have the next one? It's crazy to think about your main career was that. Very few people kind of over, Tom Brady, obviously one of those that kind of overcomes or, or, or is kind of the exception in the middle of all that. Others try to force it and should have left a long time ago. We get that too. But there are exceptions to this. But then we look around and go, well, and, and, and we even see, especially over the last 20 years, young people, college students dropping out and starting tech companies and starting all kinds of different things and this thing booming. So you didn't need to be old. Matter of fact, being old was a huge deficit. Because you were stuck. You're stuck in a mindset. You were stuck. You, the possibilities were not there. But then we come to the presidential election. Let's just get everybody who's 70. <laughs> what? <laughs> so you at least need to be 73 or 77 or 78. The three front runners right now, the best I can tell, are that age. What? The disciples, young, heard years ago somebody say they were the JV. The reason why they were fishermen because they didn't make the cut. 
The reason why there were fishermen, because as, 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 as the dust of the rabbi, I can't remember, Rob Bell, I think it said, talking about they didn't get to continue on in their studies. They studied up. They knew certain things about Hebrew. They knew the language, but they didn't make the cut. They didn't make varsity. They were the JV. Jesus used the JV to turn the world upside down. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Fishermen? Unschooled? Ordinary men? Women? Really? 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. Just say, God deliberately chooses things the world considers foolish. He chooses those who are powerless. He chose those things despised. I don't know if you've ever been there. When I got in youth ministry years ago, most of you know, I, I, maybe say most of you, some of you, you can tell already or you already know that I don't have a college education. I did do my studies through the Church of the Nazarene. I'm not sure what that gets me. It got me a piece of paper and got me ordained. Nine years, 10, year, ten years to do it. Nine, I took all Nine. But when I would meet, I became the Nazarene Youth International president of the Dallas district many years ago, back in the mid-90s, when I was living in, in Texarkana and on the Dallas district. Church of Nazarene was split up into districts and, and regions, those kind of things. I was on the regional council for the Southern Nazarene University, which is Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas. And I was on that council, but what was so odd, every time I went to it, everybody there already knew, them, knew each other or they at least knew each other from colleges, all the Nazarene universities except me. And it felt weird and you could feel it in the room. You could feel how you didn't quite rise to that level. And for years, I know one of the things I was challenged with is that I was inadequate. That was one of the biggest challenges many of many of you may have, is I dealt with, am I inadequate? And God ultimately convinced me, said, you're not inadequate. If I've called you, I'll equip you. Okay, that's the first thing. But now my biggest fear is not that I'm inadequate. And my biggest fear, and I mean this in a good way, is I won't live up to the, to, to the vision God had for my life. That's my greatest fear, and I don't mean that as in fear as in bondage fear. I don't mean it that way or as in chains fear. I mean it in the sense it motivates me, that I want to live into how God created me. Not he didn't create me inadequate. Oh, he created me for a purpose and with gifts and graces, and he's going to take the messed up, most messed up part of my life and use it for his glory. That I know. I know what it's like to say, no, you're not, in, you're not adequate enough. You're not adequate enough because you don't have the right degrees to even pastor a local church. Certain one. I know what that's like. I know what it's like. As I've said to you over and over here, till you're probably sick of it. 
We all have a reason to quit. May not have heard it over here. We all have a reason to quit. You don't know my story. You don't know all my story. You don't. We all have a reason to quit. But we sure have a bigger reason to get up. I've told people for years, yeah, you stumble and you trip. But you know what? You know what? Smart people who are disciples of Christ, you know one of the greatest things they do when they trip on their way along the way? You know the first thing they do? I don't know about you. If I ever trip out in public, you know the first thing I do? I try to get up and see if anybody saw me. I don't know if you've ever done that before. It's going, okay. Yeah, just going, okay. Second thing I do is I, it wouldn't even make sense, would it, to look and go, what just tripped me? Sorry about the spray. Some of you are going to have to start bringing, bringing shower, uh, bringing raincoats. But anyway, it just wouldn't make sense not to go look and go, what just tripped me? Identify it for two reasons. One, then maybe, just maybe, I won't trip over it again. That seems simple, right? But secondly, I don't want anyone following me to trip over it either. Get up. Let's go. When you get knocked down, get up. Don't be getting that whispering, oh, you'll never get there. You'll never be anything. You'll never. Some of you have got that right now. You're starting this walk with a, a faith, and it's, you get tripped up along the way, and you get this weight on you going, you'll never make it. You are not good enough. Don't let anyone, nobody, But let me give you a caution here. This does not give room for rebellion. There's a difference between rebellion and outside the box in my definition. We'd have Herbert Renovation. Rebellion is, I do it for me. Outside the box is, I do it for the good of others. Jesus was an outside the box guy. But he sure wasn't rebellious. Please understand that. You don't go about things trying to be rebellious. I'm going to, no one left my, nobody's going to look down on me. Oh, I ain't talking about that. Because you got to take the other parts of Scripture with you. Humility being one of those. Submission and obedience being part of that. We okay there? We okay? The word set. Set an example. But the word set here means... It really means to emerge. Now, th- get this picture again. I, I, again, I'm, this is going to be a lot of visual. You've got to work with me here, and I'm going to try to, I don't know if my body language is going to help you here. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, I'm trying to be a paintbrush up here with my body. Set means, in the Greek, means to come into being. 
to happen, to be born. Be born into an example, to emerge into an example. It's literally a transition from one point to another. It actually, it's, it's from one condition to another condition. It's literally what the transition. In other words, set, just the simple word set right here. That little three-letter word means. Now, again, think of this richness of this scripture here. Why you know you need to all be in scripture. It's so rich. But that one word has this visual of being birthed and moving from one place that contains you to another place that you flourish. Because before, before, before I was birthed, I had arms and legs, but they couldn't function the way they were designed because they were constrained. But when I'm born again, I have feet to go where they'd never go before. I have eyes to see they could never seen before. I have ears to hear what they'd never heard before. I have a tongue that would speak that would never speak the way it would before. Because I've been born I've been birthed. I'm emerging. I'm transitioning from one condition to the other. Just that little word set means that. An example. Set an example. It literally means, this is one of my favorite visuals because you know I'm pretty dramatic on things. It literally means like a stamp. Show my dragnet. Some of you older people in here, you'll know what I mean by this. Let's see this. How many of you remember that? But that's what I get. That's what I think of. He's taking that thing and he's just, bam. Bam, set a bam, bam, transition from bam, bam. It literally means leaving an imprint from repetition. Is that not visual? That literally your life as an example is a repetition over and over of driving stamp, 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 stamp on your kids, on your people you run into every day. You're stamping them. John 20, 24 through 27. I love this. And we'll, I don't know if we have a video. Josiah, where are you? Can I see you? Do we have a video of what I'm about to show you? We do not, so we will not use that, okay? But here's a visual. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, not with the disciples when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my head into his side, uh, hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the doors, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put into my side, stop doubting and believe. 
Now, what does that have to do with anything of what I just shared with you? That the term where, where Thomas says, unless I see the nail marks, is the same word used for example. Unless I see the marks, unless I see where the nail the imprint of what happened. But I'm okay, I'm resurrected. I'm resurrected, I'm no longer in the grave. Because I ran out of that grave. I believe this day and age, you can go, if you need apologetics so you'll know what Christianity is all about, I think we can need to have classes and some of our questions classes, and all they'll do that. But most of you can go Google most of it. You can go figure out the historical and you can figure out things like that. But what you can't go Google is my scars. See, I believe this culture, way more than whether, well, when was this happen? When did that happen? What they want to know is, let me see your scars. Let me see the imprint. Let me see where the mark was and you're no longer dead, but you're alive. Let me see where there's no longer an open wound, but you're healed. So you're not going to Google that, friend, because it's my story. And I can share with you about the scars that used to be open wounds that are now scars. That changes everything. Oh, maybe I don't know all the, the apologetics you need to know, but what I can do, and that's the reason why when Jesus healed the blind man, the blind young man, and they went to his parents and say, hey, 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 I heard, you know, what's the deal with your son? Well, you need to ask him. He's a grown man, so go ask him. So they went and asked him again, and he says, all I know is I was once blind, and now I see. I don't understand all the other things. You may have questions that may stump me, but what you won't stump me on is what God has done in my life. You won't stump me on that one. You will not. You cannot, because he transformed my life. Thank you, Bob. I can always count on Bob. <laughs> Have for almost 30 years. Believers in speech set an example. Because you've got to read every one of these separately, right? Set an example in speech. Set an example in conduct. Set an example in love. Set an example. You've got to read every one of these. Because if you're not careful, you'll trickle on down and go, well, what, what, I, okay, purity. No, set an example. Even though they all, start, all five of them start to kind of start running together, you have to almost start them as they're separate. And quickly, I'm going to go through some of these but believers in speech. But let me say this. It's more than just talking. Some of you do a lot of talking. Fortunately, I don't do a lot of talking. You do. Okay, no. Just kidding. But literally, watch this. It's logos. Who is the greatest logos? Jesus. But he's not just a word. He's an embodiment of an idea. 
of a way of life. So what he's talking about here when he talks about speech, he's talking about when you speak, you set an example in speech about the reasoning of this idea. It's more than just talking, even though the, I think we, our talk needs to be good too, and we can get into Christian conduct and all that, which is the next one, if we wanted to. But this is more, this word here is, is more than that. This is talking about reasoning, being able to give a hope for the answer that is within you, being able to reason well. You have been gifted with an unbelievable idea that has transformed culture, transformed history over the last 2,000 years. I think if I was a part of that, I'd want to know more about it, be able to give an answer, even though it's not all about that. We just said that about when we talked about the scars. But I'm excited to tell you about this concept of life that is of great hope and gives you great purpose and redeems all of it. He redeems your past. He redeems it. And in conduct, and literally what this means is a change word of outward behavior from an inward transformation. I think way too long Just be honest with you, we've preached, just get the outward conduct right. (laughs) But that outward conduct, and there's no, and I think things, sometimes we have to do something, sometimes outward conduct before the internal catches up. I get that. Uh, We should. There's some things that we just should stop doing the best we could initially. And then the inward catches up. But if it's only the outward, we're in trouble. So the conduct we're talking about here is a outward conduct that is caused by an inward change. Sometimes we have conduct. I'll just be honest with you. I had conduct last night I was embarrassed by. I was. I was watching the Razorback Alabama basketball game. By myself, I was out, got away from working on the message. I was out in our, we're working on our, Casita, I'm doing a remodel out there and working out there, and I was working on stuff. But I was trying to watch a Razorback game. And I didn't know, I thought I was by myself. Jan had gone to the store. I thought nobody was on the property. Bryce was right outside the door bringing some tools back. I didn't know this. And when he opened the door, he looked at me like, what? Because I was yelling, rebound! Just get a rebound! I was by myself. I wasn't trying to influence anybody else. wasn't trying to be a bad example to anybody else. You know what I'm talking about? I wasn't trying to be. But in that moment, my conduct, I just thought, you know, I got checked a little bit. Even though I wasn't anything, I wasn't cursing at them getting a rebound or anything along that line. But I let my emotions in the middle of a basketball game, our conduct's important. But it goes on to say in love. And the word here is agape, a divine love, a genuine goodwill towards others. 
Do you have a goodwill towards everybody you meet? A genuine goodwill? Because I would say this, we don't get to have that unless God is working in our lives. There's no way around it. Because we don't quite understand. The way, best way I, 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 I try to define this for people, it's a love that's not dependent on other people's actions. It's a love based on who I am and who I've become. It's like having a child born into your home that has done nothing except just be dependent and you have this overwhelming love for them based on nothing they've earned, based on nothing they've done. That's as close to those who have children and I think those who have nephews and nieces and brothers and sisters, you know how much you love a child and they've done nothing to earn it. It's just natural. That's the only way I know to define it. But what's awesome is God through his divine love, the agape love, to set an example in love, to love others. They can curse you, they can slander you, they can spit on you, but the one thing they can't do, they can't make you stop loving them. Because it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to who you become in Christ. It's a game changer. It's a game changer people cutting you off on the street. It's a game changer those guys who won't get a rebound for the Razorbacks. By the way, I'm a Razorback fan, just so you know. Just, it was Alabama. Right? But love. And faith. I love this. Faith in this sense, the core meaning is divine persuasion. To be persuaded to come to trust Christ. A divine persuasion. Grace, faith is always a gift of God. And, and, and it's not even saying, I think the thing that gets real tricky sometimes, even in mass events, even in smaller events like here, is that sometimes we can try to persuade you through quick words and good music and great illustrations, hopefully. But the faith that scripture talks about, the faith that he calls us to, it comes through divine persuasion. It's only as the spirit draws us. And I've shared with you many times, my dad's faith, my dad was owned a car business and, and, and he just sold this way, if you lack of a better way to say it. His statement was, anything I can talk you into, somebody else can talk you out of. So the persuasion part of that was just presenting. I believe the same thing in I don't want to just come here and just get a bunch of people to say they want to follow Jesus and not really follow Jesus. <laughs> I love what Dallas Willard says for our faith, and I love this phrase. Let me say this, though. Uh, that talking about we want to know the Lord's will, I think through faith, I think when we're obedient... When we're obedient, we begin to see more of what God has for us. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I love this. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then, that's the key word there to me almost, is then. 
then I need to look and see what just was said. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then you'll be able to test, in other words, have knowledge. Approve literally means to embrace what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. As we walk by faith and as we walk God's in obedience, God reveals. I love what Dallas Willard says. Said, and Dallas Willard says, anyone who, has, has, anyone who is not a continual student of Jesus and who nevertheless reads these great promises of the Bible as if they were for him or she is like someone trying to cash a check on another person's account. At best, it succeeds only sporadically. This is a faith walk. It's an obedience walk. It's to know what God says. It's to know what he wants for us and to walk that out. And the last one is impurity. It literally means here sinlessness of life. That should make us stop. Set an example in sinlessness. Now, there's a whole sermon series <laughs> around this that I won't go into today. But I was studying this. It, it, it refers back to the Nazarites, not the Nazarenes, but the Nazarites in Numbers. And it's not saying you have to do everything that a Nazarite did, but what it does, what it's referring to is, is the consecration and the commitment to live where God wants you to live, a holy set apart. As I shared with you last week, when we talk about holiness, it's more than just being morally good, which it does have that. But it means totally, utterly to be set apart. It's not like any other thing. See, our lives should be set apart. And I don't mean the way we dress. Again, back to that outward. Sometimes we can do it just to know. There's something different. There's a fragrance and aroma. There is a spirit welling up in us. Galatians 5, 24, 25 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And as we pray the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, as I remind you again, as I have over the last few weeks, literally the translation there, if you play it out, is Lord, because everything that is, connects itself to God should have holiness all over it. So when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we should be, pray, we should be thinking, Lord, let your name, let, as I carry your name today into this world, let me do it with great worth and great reputation. That This day, your name will be lifted up because you're attached to me and I'm attached to you. Hallowed be thy name. I hope we have that last illustration up there just for you to look at the sin and holiness as I've shared over the years and it's just my concept is that sin brings separation, holiness brings separate. Sin brings isolation, holiness reconciliation. Sin brings destruction left long and devastation. 
Holiness brings restoration. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put away your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and true holiness. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask Josiah and him to come as we close around the communion table today. We'll continue this series over the next few weeks. There are way more visuals involved as we go through this. But today, I just cannot get out of my mind that, that my life should be a repetition, consistency of life, not just up and down and all over the place, but this repetition of a world around me who needs to see and know that there's hope. And that my life over and over lived that way is leaving an impression, an imprint. And sometimes, yes, I may have to share that no longer is this an open wound. It's a scar. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about it. Sometimes we're in the middle of all of it. Sometimes we're not with the scar yet. But we can still say, look what God's doing. It's not healed yet. But as Jeff said earlier, we know he's in control.